0: k Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us, whether you're watching this live right now and or you're streaming this later in the week or listening to this on a podcast in this season or years from now. No matter who you are, where you're from in any part of the world, welcome as we're walking near the end, actually, of Paul's last words out of this letter called Second Timothy. When's the last time you intentionally walked through a graveyard? You're like, uh, don't tend to do that. I actually like doing it. You're like, really, John? I, I do, especially old graveyards. I like seeing who was there and what's written on people's, their epitaphs, like what's written on uh, their gravestones. Now, there's one sort of phrase that I find no matter where I go, uh, at least in the West. It's the phrase or the letters R-I-P. Do you know what they mean? Anyone want to say it out loud? Rest in peace. That's right. Now, we say that all the time in our culture, but most of us don't know. That's actually originally a Christian phrase, a phrase that was used somewhere, it started in the 7th to 8th century in Latin, and Christians started putting that on their gravestones uh, as their epitaph, meaning they had rest because they had died and they were in now the new in heaven, and they had peace because they knew Jesus, rest in peace. Now, in our culture, rest in peace now is sort of a secular phrase. When someone dies, we you hear this all the time on award shows and on Twitter and on Instagram. Everyone goes, oh, I'm so sorry that that person died. Are we really going to miss them? And hey, listen, our thoughts and prayers go with you. and, And now they are resting in peace or rest in peace. And every time I hear that, I have a little twinge of a, ah, really? Because the truth is many, many, many people are not resting right now. And they're actually not at peace right now, even though they've died. And it's interesting that as Paul is beginning to end his last words, he talks a lot about resting in peace in the right way. By the way, if you're a seeker or a skeptic or a long-term Christian or a brand new Christian, this is for all of us today. Second Timothy 4:1, in the presence of God, remember Paul 2nd to Timothy and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I, Paul, give you, Timothy, this charge. Okay, this is my last full request. And as I do this, I need to remind you, Timothy, we're in God's presence right now. Hey, Timothy, do you know who's listening right now? Who's watching us right now? Who we're following in this moment? Who we're making commitments to? God the Father and Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Now, I need to stop. And before I get really preaching, I I need to point out something that I do all the time, and it matters because it reveals a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. Do you notice that when Paul opens here, he says that God the Father and Jesus Christ are at the same level. They share the same space. That means Jesus is equal to the Father. And what's so shocking about that again, because remember, Jews are monotheists, only one God. There's only is that if Jesus shares the same space with the Father, that means he's equal with the Father. And if he's equal with the Father, then he has to be God because God does not share his glory with another. And you can't be in that space without being him. There's only one. Wow. I remind you, Timothy. And I remind myself and I remember, sorry, remind every Christian and also every non-Christian that when we die, the first person you're going to see is Jesus, not your aunt, not your uncle, not your favorite grandmother you can't wait to see, not your lost dog Gizmo. No, no, no. The only person you're going to see right when you die is Jesus. And Jesus is the judge no matter who you are and how you lived and what religion you belong to or were part of, or if you believed there was no God or you weren't sure and you were agnostic or spiritual or enlightened, the very first person we're all going to see is Jesus, the judge. Now, for us that know him, this moment will not be terror, but fearful and joy. (laughs) He knows us. He's passionately for us. We know him. We trust him. And we cannot wait to see him. But for those who do not know Jesus, this day will be terrifying. For at that moment, everything that you've put your trust in will fade in the brilliance of the face of Jesus himself. I mean, we talked about this in the Eternity series. Do you remember? Revelation twenty eleven? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And we asked the question, remember, who was sitting on this great white throne of judgment? Well, God the Father in the Bible is the great judge, but he uses Jesus as his agent of judgment. Jesus himself said these crazy, outlandish, almost insane words about himself while he was alive. Unless, of course, it's true. When he said about himself in Matthew twenty-five, thirty-one, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. In other words, he's saying that he claims God the Father's throne, which again, you can't do unless you're God. And he says that all the nations will be gathered before him and he, Jesus, will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. It says that the earth and the sky fled. In other words, there's no place to hide. The end is now come, the moment of grace is over, and we all will give an account. Remember Revelation 2012, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before this throne, and the books were open and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. These are the great book of deeds and great and small, those with power and those without power, all people throughout all of history, known and unknown, the great writers and generals and poets and actors, the great thinkers and politicians, the great religious leaders of the day and billions of normal unknown people will all stand before God, will all be judged by Jesus. We will all stand to hear what he has to say. Now it says, and this is why Paul starts this conversation here, that the dead are judged according to what they had done recorded in the books. Now notice there was two books, one for unbelievers and one for believers. That's called the book of life. Now let's just sit for, with this for a moment as we get going. There's no place to hide. There's no amount of talking you can do to get out of this. You can't buy your way out of this. You can't remove this act. Every irrelevance will be cast to aside. I mean, this is said again and again and again in the Bible. Romans 2.16, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Even a little bit more fear-inducing, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hmm back to revelation 2013 the sea gave up their dead that were in it and death and hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done so what's going on here it seems to be saying if you misread it that we're saved if we're good enough seems to be saying there's some large eternal scale and if i'm a nice person and all my good outweigh my bad then i get in no 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 see none of us are saved by what we bring to the table we're only saved by the person who actually did it for us because he was without sin. Remember, we've learned this again and again, and again, if you're a seeker or skeptic, this is for you. Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace that you get saved. Through faith, that means informed trust. It's never from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Salvation is by faith in Jesus, but faith is revealed by the life it produces. So the first book is where unbelievers are judged. Those that did not put their trust in Jesus Christ will not have an advocate on that day. See, Jesus in the Bible is called the great high priest who stands in the gap for us. And he's called the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he's called the savior. And since he claimed to be the only door and the only way to the father on judgment day, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you don't have his covering or his salvation or his work or his intercession. You're just left with you. Your good deeds will never be enough. Your sin has not been covered, removed, or forgiven. So question one, on that day, because death will happen to you, do you want covering or not? There's this other book, the Lamb's Book of Life. Those that did know Jesus are saved by his grace and mercy. They're not any better or more moral. They just said, Jesus, have mercy. This this book is filled with the names of those that knew God exclusively through Jesus. And their judgment isn't about salvation, but it's testing everything we did, the quality of our life. Everything we did that was for Jesus will ripple. Everything we didn't, even if we did it in Jesus' name, will be burned. We learned about this in 1 Corinthians 3.13. The fire will test the quality of each person's work to Christians. If what has been built survives, the builder receives reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only is one escaping through the flames. Now, why did I go through this? Because all of this is in Paul's mind when he's talking to Timothy. Hey, Timothy, you know Jesus' second coming is real. And you know the judgment's real, and I'm going to be judged, and you're going to be judged by a fully holy, loving God. So with Jesus' second coming where he's going to make all things right and all human beings are going to be judged i give you this charge he says this preach the word and be prepared in season and out of season to correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction so the first thing remember timothy's a pastor and paul's mentoring him as a young pastor he says as a pastor Knowing that everything is going to go down the way it's going to go down. The very first thing you're called to do is preach, herald, proclaim, explain, outline, point out, show what it means and what to do in every day life. But preach what? And talk about what? And point to what? Oh, preach God's word. The written word of God, the scriptures, the Bible. We, we spent the last two weeks in chapter three unpacking what is the Bible and why was it given? So Timothy, you preach this and you believe it and you sit under its authority. And in every circumstance, Timothy, when life is amazing and when life is boring, when life is terrible and when it's convenient and not convenient, when the crowds are large and the white hanky is out and they're saying amen and they love your preaching. And when there's no crowd at all and there's no one there to listen, you preach. Because you know the Bible is going to be criticized and called dangerous and out of date and on the wrong side of history. Oh, you keep preaching it. You, Timothy, are like a doctor or a midwife. You need to be in the room at a critical moment because your preaching could be the difference between life and and death, celebration and mourning, freedom or funeral. Oh, and by the way, Paul is an older pastor saying to a younger one, says, Hey, listen, by the way, uh, when you preach, can you focus on three things? Uh, The first thing is you need to correct Christians thinking uh, it, it's adjusting it's submitting when our ideas are just a little off a little wrong we we, we need to get them back I, I don't know if you've ever been to a chiropractor before uh, I started going a few years ago I'd never been to one they freaked me out because of the weird sounds of them breaking bones anyone know what i'm talking about okay and i went oh welcome mr thompson so nice to meet you and they're like oh my goodness you're such a mess your spine is like this and i'm like what are you talking about your posture is terrible and oh here's why you have no alignment and all this is not function just lay down this table what's your name again how many kids and i was like oh they ambushed me have they done this to you we're talking about my kids and suddenly my neck is cracked and my back is cracked and they're doing all and i was like oh did you Now, if you've been to a chiropractor, you know two things happen. Either you feel great right after, or you feel terrible right after. But the point is this. The correction is an adjustment, not surgery. Good biblical preaching is going to continue to adjust our spiritual spines to make sure we're in alignment with God. It's not surgery. It's not false. It's just getting us right. And sometimes it feels great and sometimes it feels hurtful and sometimes there's weird noises, but at the end of the day, you're in alignment. So Paul says to Timothy, hey, when you're preaching, you make sure you correct people. Oh, oh, second thing, though, it's not just about correction. Sometimes you need to rebuke. And this actually is surgery. This is when there's cancer. This is when you got to go in and rip the stuff out because it will kill if actually it stays in there. You need to get rid of wrong thinking. You need to, to actually say there is consequence to false belief. You can't say sin is not sin if the Bible calls it sin. You cannot just act any way you want because you're now a follower of Jesus. You took vows at your baptism. You can't think any way you want or teach anything you want. There is a strong no. See, there's correction, chiropractor, work, and then there's surgery. Well, but while you're doing all that, just don't be a jerk. (laughs) Encourage people. Encourage people to keep going. Now, I, I was amazed this week. The verb form of encourage here is actually where we get one of the names of the Holy Spirit, paraclete which means encourager the coach the one that rallies you and empowers you and keeps you going so when you're sitting under really good preaching you'll feel encouraged rebuked and corrected the encouraged side is you're going to find out who Jesus is and and who God is and how to keep going and and what your identity is and it's sort of like hey listen we know what faith is and love is and hope is let's let's be clear but let's keep going Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, listen, I know you got a personal life and a public life and problems with Christians and false teaching and societies against what you believe and you just struggle as a human being and the list goes on and on. So I just want to say that when you preach, don't only correct, rebuke, and encourage, but have great patience. It's going to be hard. Just patience, patience, patience. Long-term thinking and, oh, be really careful in your instruction. In other words, do your homework. Be diligent in your preaching. But I got bad news. See, Timothy, no matter how diligent you are, and patient you are, and honest you are, and kind you are, and intellectually engaged you are, and historically accurate you are, no matter how ironic and kind you are, even to those who don't know Jesus, just so you know, most people, they're not going to listen to you. Verse three, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Humans inside the church and outside the church are gonna hunger for and long for and being drawn to and seduced towards false teaching, good feeling teaching, half truth teaching. So let me just tell you in the last days, which we've been living in since the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus, people will not want truth. They're not gonna put up with sound doctrine. It's just the way it's going to go. What are people going to want? Oh, I'll just tell you. Instead, they're going to want preaching that suits their own desires. They'll gather around them a great number of pastors and teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. This is revealing. Again, stay with me if you're a seeker or a skeptic or a Christian. False teaching will always focus on our desires. They'll teach things that we will like to hear because it will actually affirm what we want. Our passions will not be crucified, but hugged. 2020, this is growing exponentially. See, that's why we need an external source, an external authority, and an eternal word, a transforming word. We need a word that confronts all, not some. We need something beyond us and above us. We in the whole human race want to hear what we love and believe and desire. False teacher will th- teaching will say things like, sin's not really sin. It's not really bad. It's okay. Or sin is not sin. We know better in 2020. Everyone just grew up in a bad environment and everyone's sick, but never sinful. When you call someone sinful, that damages their ego. God doesn't care who you sleep with. God doesn't care how you use your money or suffering for God or his good news. That's not true. There are many ways to heaven, not one way to heaven. You don't need to deny yourself or or your wants. See, listen, God's love, that's all that counts. And he just accepts you the way you are. You don't need to change. God needs to change for you. And by the way, if you're just sincere and good, God will love you and you'll be okay. This muddled thinking, this uncritical acceptance of false teaching is rampant, even in churches. And biblical preaching, not angry preaching, not 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 being a jerk, but just biblical preaching will be more and more outdated and more and more irrelevant and more and more not culturally helpful. It will be foolish. It will be called dangerous and anti-progressive and a, a holder of people back and dangerous thinking and preventing people from becoming what they should be to be free. People are just going to want preaching that affirms their passions and their desires and their wants. That's just one version of it. It's also going to change the truth itself. This really started getting clear to me in church circles a few years ago when I noticed that church churches in Canada started changing the song Amazing Grace because it was too offensive. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved uh, anyone, wretch like me oh, no, 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 we can't call people wretched because that is not affirming to their identity and who they are. No, no, we need to encourage people. People are born good, no. So they changed the phrase to save and set me free. A softer language would be more palatable and more helpful. Do you know the story of Amazing Grace? I've shared it once before. It was written by a guy named John Newton. He was born in 1725 in London to a Puritan mum... Who he lost two weeks after his seventh birthday and then to a stern sea captain father who at 11 years old took him out full time into the ocean. After many voyages and a reckless youth of sleeping around and getting drunk all the time, he was impressed into the British Navy. It almost sounds like his dad couldn't handle him a- and. He hated the Navy so much, he attempted to desert and he received eight dozen lashes and was, was reduced to the rank of common seaman. And then later he got out of that and started serving on slave ships. Newton didn't even get along with the crew of those who were enslaving other human beings. And when he was in West Africa, they hated him so much, they left him there. And a guy named Amos Chloe, or Clowey, a slave trader, had married an African princess, an African royal who herself was enslaving other Africans. And this slave trader and this African princess were together and Amos hated John Newton so much, he gave John Newton to his wife as a slave. So in 1748, he's rescued by a sea captain his father had hired so he was a slave and then he's out of slavery and as he's going home there was this terrible storm and he about to he he was going to die and he cried to god i'll obey you and know you if you save my life and he was saved at that moment shockingly he started reading his bible stopped drinking stopped sleeping around but he didn't leave the slave trade after his return to england in 1750 he made three voyages as the captain of two slave ships though he was now reading the bible and following jesus Now, he wasn't as cruel as the others, but he hadn't renounced slaving. And then as he read the Bible more, he realized that was wrong. He renounced all that and amazingly became an Anglican pastor and started preaching the gospel. So watch this. Ready? This man who lost his mom at seven, whose dad was borderline abusive. He grew up drinking hard and partying hard and having sex with tons of people. He's an abused boy who became an abuser. This man who was a slave became a slaver himself. He was rebellious and then he meets Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Wretch like me. Now, lots of you are going, well, of course he's wretched, but I'm not wretched. And, he, and, and John Newton, if you listen to his old preaching, would say, no, no, you've got to understand. Yeah, I lived a wretched life, but you're as dangerously sinful as I am. But see, our world doesn't want to hear that we're as bad as John Newton. I'm not a slaver. I'm not involved. Oh, yeah, but the Bible says in James, if you break one of God's laws, you've broken them all. So not only are they going to preach to your desires, not only are they going to affirm something that is not true, more than that, 2 Timothy 4.4, 4, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. They'll just start doubting the historicity of everything. Well, Jesus was a good man, but not sure if he even existed. Maybe he's just a moral character or or, yeah, he really did exist, but he didn't do all those miracles and he absolutely did not rise from the dead. No, no, no. See, the Christian faith is unashamedly anti-myth. We are rooted in real history. Peter himself says this in 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Churches all around the world today on this Sunday have confessed the Apostles' Creed. And in the middle of it, we say this, we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and descended to the dead. This is a historical event. Jesus literally existed and was living during Roman rule and was crucified under Roman rule under a man named Pontius Pilate. Now, I was in Israel literally a year ago today when I'm recording this. And I was at the place where I looked at the actual inscription of Pontius Pilate in one of his summer homes. He existed. This is real and truth. He says, all that's true. And it's going to be really hard to keep preaching. And by the way, despite all that being true, verse five, but you, Timothy, you keep your head in all situations. You, You endure hardship. You do the work of an evangelist. You discharge all the duties of your ministry. So keep your head comes from the world of bars and alcohol. When you get drunk, some of you know this, you waste time and money. When you get drunk, you get confused. When you're high and drunk, you're incoherent. And you do things you never imagined yourself doing. Here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Don't get buzzed or drunk when it comes to truth. Keep your head. But more than that, endure hardship. Uh, Suffer for the gospel. Be a good soldier of Jesus. And the last thing, hey, be an evangelist. Tell people the good news of Jesus. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. This matters. There's only two other places in the whole New Testament where this phrase, evangelist, is used. It's used in Ephesians 4 in a list of leadership spiritual gifts. They're not offices, they're gifts. And the other place it's used in Acts by a guy, about a guy named Philip, who's called Philip the Evangelist. So we talk about this all the time, right, here in our church. Timothy had the spiritual gift of evangelism. And because that's one of his gifts, Paul's saying, hey, you make sure to do that. But, but don't just say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. No, no, no. If it's not a gift, it's a discipline. I don't have the gift of evangelism. But I share the gospel all the time with people. Because I'm called to. Paul's saying to Timothy, you keep sharing the good news of Jesus as darkness grows. The story shifts. Paul becomes more transparent, more honest, more clear-minded about his own needs in his own reality. It says, I'm already, verse 6, being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. You might not know what a drink offering is. It's not him getting drunk. It comes from Numbers 15. In the Old Testament, priests would offer wine and spill it out as an offering to God, as a symbol of blood being poured out. Jesus, of course, redefined this with communion, the Last Supper. And, and Paul is basically saying, look, just like an offering, I'm about to be given up before God. But actually, it's that last little phrase. If you're taking notes, I'd underline this one. My departure's near. My departure, I didn't know this. This is so amazing. That word departure has multiple meanings in Greek that gives us the insight to Paul's thinking just before he's murdered himself. First, it means release from bondage. It comes from this powerful farming image where a donkey or a horse or or, or maybe cattle had been worked all day with a yoke. And at the end of the day, the farmer goes over, takes the yoke off, releases it from bondage, takes it over, gets it food, gets it water. It gets to rest and even play a little. And he's saying, I'm going home to rest, being unyoked. But more in Greek, it actually means also to change your house or move your house, to pull up stakes, to strike the tent, to go to a better land. And Paul is saying, I'm finally going home to the better house. And lastly, it was a phrase used by sailors. Before they took the long departure to a long journey. Paul is saying, I'm going home. I mean, this is why Paul is so radical. I mean, it's what he said when he was in house arrest earlier when he wrote Philippians. When he said Philippians, uh, in Philippians 121, for me to live everyday life is Jesus and to die is gain. Paul says, finally, Real rest, finally being unburdened, finally going home, finally my last voyage to see Jesus face to face. I fought the good fight, verse 7. I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who've longed for his, that's Jesus, appearing. Now, again, this is important. Don't misread this. If you misread this, it sounds like he says, I'm getting this amazing crown from Jesus the judge because I lived this amazing life and gave up my life. No, 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 no. No, don't, don't reverse it. The crown of righteousness is a symbol of eternal life. And notice who's giving it to Paul. Jesus is giving him the gift. It's always gift. He gives it to us now. He gives it to us then. And notice, Jesus the judge gives it. For us that love Jesus, that last moment, or first moment, really, for us, again, will not be terror. It will be homecoming. We'll be seeing Jesus face to face, the one we've loved our whole life and given to our whole life and pointed to and sang to and served and trying to follow. Now, I know there was that contemporary song about imagining what it will be like to see Jesus. And it got a little cheesy, but actually... Have you thought about what it's going to be like when you see him? Uh, Question one. Are you ready to actually face Jesus? Because your death is guaranteed. So is mine. To all of uh, you who are not Christians yet, you have not crossed the line of faith, no matter your background or journey, no matter your spiritual history, religious history, or lack of it, find mercy today. Will you face God in relationship with Jesus or without it? The very heart of the gospel, one wrote, is the supreme truth that God accepts us with no conditions whatsoever when we put our trust in the atoning sacrifice of His incarnate Son. Though we're helplessly sinful, God in grace forgives completely It's by his infinite grace that we're saved, not by our moral character, not by works of righteousness, not by command keeping, not by church going. We do nothing except God's total pardon. We receive guaranteed eternal life. All of us are going to face judgment and give an account for our life and deeds. The difference maker is Jesus, who makes us clean when we cannot clean ourselves. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believed believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember where I started? Rest in peace. To have the rest of God and the peace with God, you need Jesus. You can actually have RIP on your tombstone, truthfully, if you say yes to Jesus. So my question to you is, what do you do with him? Do you cry out and say, I'm a sinner, forgive me, have mercy on me, and I accept you? Or do you say, no, I'm going to go on my own? To us who are Christians, Paul would ask, Are you homesick for your real home? Did you notice Paul's very last words here? All who have longed for Jesus' appearing. Longing, heartache, thirst, desire. I mean, this brings home just reality. I love what Job said so long ago. Naked I came from my mom's womb, and naked I'm going to depart. Yep. Family, music, positions, memories, spouse, intellect, kids, health, education, homes, positions, degrees, personalities, it's all going to fade. We, as members of the kingdom of Jesus, live life understanding that life is good and can be beautiful, and we're supposed to enjoy this life, but this is not the end. I've shared this before, but I love this story because it brings it home again. There's a tale of an eminent man. Remember this story? Full of love, full of love of letters and art. He grew old and drew near the end of his life. And one day, One of his servants found him moving slowly through his grand, splendid library. He was touching, you remember, all the many treasured books and volumes with sensitive, loving fingers. He laid his gentle hands on all the gorgeous statues he had in this magnificent library, and he looked upon all the art. And as he moved slowly about, the servant heard him say, I have to leave you, and you, and you, and you. You're gonna leave your family and your house and your money behind. You're gonna leave the world behind and beauty and art and friendship and social media and your accomplishments. I must leave you. I was watching on Netflix this week, this new discovery of a whole new series of mummies, incredible, and they were talking about them. And as they discovered mummy after mummy, all this stuff was there. See, let the Egyptians help us. There is no U-Haul to the afterlife. I've done many funerals. A U-Haul has never been beside the grave. That's why in our secular culture in the West, we're told you need to do everything you can, try everything, no matter if it costs you, no matter if it's sinful, because this life is it. That's why beauty products and the entertainment industry have so much power. But for we as Christians, it's not true. Do you actually live your life like this is it? How homesick are you? Your homesickness, by the way, will determine your generosity with time and treasure and money whether you invest all in now or in the not yet. I mean, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto of our movement in Matthew 6, 19, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin cannot destroy, thieves cannot break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. There your heart is also. In other words, where's your home? Our leaving is going to be when we finally get real rest. We'll be finally unburdened. We'll finally be going fully home. Finally, our last voyage to see Jesus face to face. And I don't know about you. I was contemplating this week. When I see Jesus face to face, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've loved him since I was three, but I've never seen him. I don't know if I'm going to dance for joy like the song says or fall down or cover my face or scream and yell or run and try to hug him. I have I have no clue. What I do know is that when I see him, it will be the fulfillment of a lifetime. I will become fully human and so will you because we'll see love and holiness face to face. But as we're waiting for that moment, One last thought, what type of church or churches and leaders are we going to need as we move forward in this very difficult, growing, dark time? Well, if you're a pastor listening to me today in our church or an elder from our church, or actually another church, or maybe you're a key volunteer in our community or belonging to another church, and you're wondering for you, what is the take home this week? It's this, it's the whole passage. Go home as a pastor or key volunteer or elder and read it over and look at Paul's call. A holy life, ready to stand for truth, ready to teach, in season, being patient, working on knowing the scriptures. Go home and reflect on this. But for us as Sanctus Church, I just want to end with these words that maybe you can talk about later in your connect group and really reflect on. John Piper, who I respect and agree with lots and struggle with other things. When he was writing actually on the U.S. election, wrote a letter and this really, what I'm about to share, brings home the type of churches and leaders and and people we're going to need. He said to pastors during all the political stuff down south, but it applies to us, And it comes right out of Second Timothy, really. Have you been cultivating real Christians who see the beauty and worth of the Son of God? Have you faithfully unfolded and heralded the unsearchable riches of Jesus? Are you raising up generations of those who say with Paul, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Have you shown them? Have you reminded me, he says, that we are exiles and and, and pilgrims only in this life? That our citizenship is in heaven, for which we're awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we feel in our bones to live is Christ, to die is gain? Lord Jesus Christ, head of the church. I pray for every pastor and every elder and every key volunteer that we would be like Paul and Timothy, no matter the cost and I pray into this moment that it would be holy and would ripple for a decade or two, not just for this moment. Holy Spirit speak to pastors and leaders and others, convict them, convict us, show us, encourage us to be biblical, to be steadfast, stalwarts of truth, well-being kind. Lord, I pray for people who have not crossed the line of faith and as they're wrestling with judgment and good deeds, I pray, Holy Spirit, go to every seeker and skeptic and people of other faiths and open their eyes and show them the beauty and the power and the majesty of Jesus, but also show them judgment is real so they will repent and be saved. And lastly, we pray over Sanctus Church for every child and every teen and young adult and adult that there would be this unnatural, God-given, Holy Spirit-inspired scripture-affirming truth that we would love this life, but in this life we'd love Jesus and we would view death as gain, not loss. Make us homesick. Not for heaven or rewards Don't even make us homesick for no war, no pain, no death. Though That's incredible. Somehow, I don't know how to pray this or preach this. Make me, John Thompson, make the family that I help lead here homesick for Jesus himself. Help us, Father. Help us, Son. Help us, Holy Spirit. Amen.